today on CityCast Pittsburgh. This weekend, I accidentally mentioned how cool the souvenir spacesuits are at a local museum with an earshot of a five-year-old. Half an hour later, he was wearing it and I was apologizing to his mother. Kids are always listening. So what do you say when they have questions about the really complicated topics they see and hear about out in the world? Reporter Tylisa C. Johnson is tackling a big one for Public Source. She's with host Morgan Moody chatting about what you say if the kids in your life ask about critical race theory. It's Tuesday, March 15th. I'm Megan Harris, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. Tylisa, you reported on critical race theory for public source. Can you explain briefly what CRT is? To like make it very, very simple, it's college-level sociological thinking that goes far beyond the scope of K-12 education. Um, critical race theory analyzes how racial discrimination has been embedded in our country's laws, our country's economic policies, our social structures, and then it shows how this discrimination has led to disparate outcomes between different racial groups. So before it's like crescendo into national consciousness, it was mostly being discussed as uh, this sort of niche subject in graduate schools and higher education, but now you can find it at school board meetings and political rallies and state houses. How did it go from that to a full-blown like political rally cry? In September 2020, uh, former President Donald Trump signed an executive order made to ban certain types of like diversity training in federal agencies. Um, and and ideas that it deemed, quote, divisive. This was all at the same time as like legislative attacks on voting rights, like the Black Lives Matter protests and like the 1619 project, which basically, you know, aimed to like reframe the country's history by centering slavery as like the story of America's found, founding, right? So that, yeah, you can see how all these things are kind of working at the same time. Um, and, and that was kind of how it was brought into this larger conversation. And it's, yeah, it's kind of set up in a way that, that honestly, like teaching this is going to hurt certain people's feelings when the reality is that it's just kind of trying to teach the history and, and of what's happened in this country. Right. Like opponents to CRT definitely see it as an effort to like rewrite American history and like convince white people that they are inherently racist and like should feel guilty of, you know, all these advantages um, that come from a system that favors white people. And there are concerns about the impacts of self-esteem on children. So there are a lot of layers, I think, to both sides of how people are seeing this CRT debate that I think is really fascinating. And what do we know about CRT and how it's used in, in schools in Pennsylvania? So the Pennsylvania Department of Education has like flat out said that critical race theory is not part of or taught in any Pennsylvania K-12 schools. But we know that the CRT controversy has come up in heated school board meetings and even led to sort of the ousting of some um, school leadership. Yes, Wickley Academy. Yeah, that comes to mind. I mean, Mars Area School District 
uh, comes to mind when I think they voted unanimously to ban teaching critical race theory in classrooms. Um, And a a curriculum transparency bill was even pushed by uh, PA lawmakers like all the way to Governor Tom Wolf's desk. But he vetoed that, calling it dangerous and harmful. Yeah. And there's evidence that shows that critical race theory is like barely being taught in K-12 schools. I mean, I could, yeah, I could tell you that. I didn't learn any of that. You know, like any any education that I've learned has been on my own doing and realistically probably around college, after college, um, you know, just me doing my own reading and research, really, just to educate myself. But those things were not taught in school. We had one month where we learned about basically George Washington Carver, Rosa Parks, and Martin Luther King Jr. And that was about it as far as, you know, learning about historical Black figures. Right. Or the way that even racism has played out in this country, basically minimized to a woman sitting in the front of the bus. Very deep, very deep. You know, I went to a Quaker school. Yeah. I'm from Delaware, so like I feel like that's very on brand. But I went to a Quaker school (laughs) from kindergarten to 12th grade. And then my mom was like adamant about me going to a historically black college. So I ended up going to Florida A&M in Tallahassee, which is a HBCU, whoop whoop, you know, Rattlers. And like I was so exposed, like, In my first year there, I was exposed to so much that it was like overload almost because I was like, how had I spent so many years of my life not learning about these things that feel so greatly important to the fabric of how we live every day? Yeah, I the way they make it seem is that we went from we have no history, you know, prior to being enslaved. And then it's just kind of like we were enslaved. Then we're freed. And then, you know, years later, this is like kind of the progress that we've gotten. But it it doesn't it doesn't at all dive into, you know, kind of how we're centuries behind. Absolutely. You know, and I spoke to some people who actually were talking about a lot of things in that vein, you know, like black history is American history. Right. Like that was something that Medina Jackson, who um, is the director at Pittsburgh's pride program she's the one who said that to me is that you know when we don't teach black history we're missing like vital information about how this country like came to be yeah and supporters of crt really see it as an opportunity for more diverse and um inclusive curriculum and say that they just want a curriculum that's reflective of all students right like a black student should be able to see themselves in the curriculum in the same way an asian student should be able to see themselves in the curriculum a white student etc and you know it's critical that they see not only themselves but their cultures right and their community like reflected in the lessons yeah medina actually went on to say something really powerful she said they cannot contribute solutions to society's ills if we don't fully equip them with the knowledge of what the problems are, how we work to address those challenges and resistance to oppression from empowerment. We can't expect them to not perpetuate racism, nor can we expect them to actively challenge racism if we don't educate them on what it is and how it shows up in everyday life and across systems. Yeah, it's it's funny because you even mentioned Nicole Hannah Jones and I saw a, a tweet from her recently and it was saying like, you know, the reason that we actually even need CRT in our classrooms is because a lot of you think that the only way that it can be racist is toward black people. And it's, you know, and that's not it. There are just like so many fundamental misunderstandings about how race operates in this country and operates this country. Right, that's, that's like, the exactly. This is a huge undertaking. How do you talk to kids about CRT? 
Yeah, that was something that was really like the guiding question for this piece. That was something I was really interested in. Like, how do you make this this so complicated topic? You know, how do you synthesize it for a child that's just trying to understand like how they fit into this? Right. And so people that I talked to, the first thing that all of them said was to start with a smile. Right. Like talk about race with a smile. Let your kids know that it's okay to talk about race. It's safe to talk about race. It's not this like bad, scary thing. Um, Listen to your kids, validate their feelings, validate their pain. There is a lot of pain that kids are experiencing even like the bits and pieces of this that they're coming to understand. And so sit with them and validate them and let them know that their feelings are okay it's okay that they're experiencing them. And then put those feelings, those fears, those emotions, those concerns into larger context, right? Like let them know that they're not alone and they have this larger community that supports them and that, you know, has built this legacy of resilience and triumph. And they're a part of that. Um, and, you know, one thing I thought was really powerful that, um, Father Paul Abernathy actually said was to help kids record their own history Mm. because they are a part of that history right now. Like this is history unfolding before our eyes. And honestly, I'm getting a little tired of living through all this history. It's a lot of history. (laughs) It's a lot of history going on right now. times. Yeah. I'm tired of I'm tired of listening. (laughs) Tired of living through unprecedented times. Right. But truly like they are living through history and will be for the rest of their lives. And so they have to, it's important that we capture that. It's important that we catalog that, that we, that we say this. Um, And then also giving kids, you know, age appropriate tools, picture books, movies, media, so they can learn and also like draw their own conclusions. A lot of this and a lot of the conversations that I was having around, you know, these, conversations around history in general is like you learn it so that you can think about it chew on it and draw your own conclusions you know and so get them in that practice what are some of the the resources that you would recommend for kids that are age appropriate absolutely so there are it depends on what ages we're talking about right so if you're like from you know infant three months, anywhere up to like four, I might suggest like Anti-Racist Baby by Ibram Kendi or Let's Talk About Race by Julius Lester. Um, There's Still I Rise, which is like a cartoon history of African-Americans that's like ages eight plus. Then there are like teenagers. You know, this book is Anti-Racist by Tiffany Jewell. Not My Idea, which is a book about whiteness um, and gets into like the microaggressions of it all. So um, there are a lot of different books, but I would definitely encourage everybody to go check it out on our website, publicsource.org. Little plug. Little plug, little plug. <laughs> plug. <laughs> Had to toss it in there. <laughs> no, that's great. I think um, because I have a nephew who, you know, we always instill in him as like, you know, well, you're black. And he'll be like, am I a black boy? Is, is mommy a black girl? You know, those sort of questions. So I think kind of like finding a way to talk to him about these things. And it's so important to acknowledge that like they have these questions, right? Like we don't want to act like this is not something that they're thinking about. Like they're experiencing it just like we are. So that's why this is so important. Like you have to have that conversation. So how do you broach it when you do? And whether it's taught in schools or not, do you think it's important for families also to talk about it at home? Yes, because I think 
kids are going to be experiencing it out in the world. And this is something, honestly, that was echoed by a lot of the people, a lot of the local like thought leaders, experts that I talked to is they're already going to be having these experiences, these conversations, these run-ins in the world. And so to not talk about it at home is almost doing them a disservice because you're not helping them learn how to navigate it as they grow, as they get older, as they start having more nuanced conversations when it's no longer like on the playground, but they're in like a high school debate class or they've moved to college or now they're in a job. And you know, you want them to be able to navigate the world in a way yeah. that they understand other people's cultures and they understand they have true self-awareness about how they fit in to to this country, you know, because that's right for me. Like that's a way to stay safe. That's a way to live well. That's a way to it's it's a lot. of It means a lot, you know, when you when you have the knowledge and you're equipped with the knowledge to better navigate these situations, these talks, you know, microaggressions, any, anything that could possibly come up, you're prepared for it because you've had those conversations at home. Yeah, it shouldn't just be, con- I mean, those were conversations that I had with my parents from a very early age, just because, you know, it's just things are different. Things are different when you look a different way. And, um, you know, that was for the sake of, of safety, you know, to, to know that this is how you could possibly be treated in this world. But I think it's important for people of other races to know that too, because, you know, everybody needs allies. And um, I shouldn't be the only person that knows that a microaggression is happening. You know, somebody else should be there and be able to help me out as well. Right. I mean, fighting fighting the fight by yourself and like it's like weathering, you know, it weathers on you so hard and it feels like we're kind of at this turning point. Like if we, if we say we want to be more inclusive, if we say we want to be less divisive and we want to be more unified, then shouldn't we do the things that it takes to get there? You can check out Tylisa's article at publicsource.org and we'll have a link to it in our show notes. Before you go, here's what else is happening in Pittsburgh today. A program led by the Carnegie Museum of Natural History wants us all to turn out the lights during peak bird migration hours from now through the end of May. It's part of a program called Bird Safe Pittsburgh, and it shouldn't be too hard for most of us. Those hours are midnight to 6 a.m., a.k.a. long after I'm asleep and well before I want anyone turning on my lights. Experts on our feathered friends estimate that more than 100,000 birds pass over the Pittsburgh area every spring and fall, and keeping it dark keeps them away from us and away from all our windows. A bunch of our friends at Port Authority still don't want to get vaccinated. You might remember the agency announced a mandatory vax policy back in January. Well, the union filed an injunction and now a county judge has rejected it. Employees have until today to get their first shot, request a medical or religious exemption, or be put on paid leave until a hearing can be worked out, which apparently means that up to 20% of all PAT trips could just go away at least for the time being. CEO Catherine Kellerman said in a statement that she thinks it's worth it to keep riders safe. 
and the Steelers might have a new quarterback. Big Ben, of course, retired this year after 18 years with the team. The NFL Network reported yesterday, though, that we'd reached a two-year deal with free agent Mitch Trubisky. It's kind of complicated. He was a very highly rated draft pick a few years ago, but then he wasn't that amazing with the Bears, or more recently as a backup with Buffalo. Personally, I'd still put money on us using that number 20 overall draft pick on a younger, more promising QB, if there's a good one still left, and there should be. Check out our episode from February 28th for a quality list of potentials. And in the meantime, let's just all keep our fingers crossed. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you like what you hear, please let us know. We love suggestions and we're always down to hear about the latest and greatest in our area. And make sure to check out that morning newsletter too. It's full of more Pittsburgh news and happenings that'll have you sounding like you know what you're talking about to all your best and worst friends. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye y'all. Is this thing on? Ladies, ladies.